Good morning, Lighthouse. I am so excited that you're here this morning on Palm Sunday. And uh, just want to share a couple things before we jump into the Word with you. Really, just one. Next week, we're going to be celebrating together uh, Easter um, baptism. And it's the first time we're going to do baptism on Easter. But traditionally, uh, in the early church, baptism was actually celebrated on Easter. And, and so I'm excited. We've got a number of people who are getting baptized. And if you're at a point where you're like, I, I actually, I gave my life to Jesus, but I've, I've never made a profession of faith, a public declaration that I'm following Jesus, which is what baptism is, and you're interested, would like to know more, or you want to do it, please don't hesitate. Send us a text or an email at info at mylcc.church, info at mylcc.church, and we'll get back with you for the inf- with the information for that. So we're going to jump into the Lord's Word, but before we do, let's, let's pray. Father, over the next few minutes, we just pray that you would speak into our hearts and into our lives as we, as we talk about the meaning, the substance behind this day of Palm Sunday. God, we lift these things to you, and we pray them in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started this whole series, and we actually, you know, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? And we started it by talking about this idea that the story isn't always about the story. We thought about that idea that the story isn't always about the story that we're listening to. Watching on the screen, we we talked last week out of Mark chapter 9 about Jesus healing this this boy or this young man and and the fact that in Mark chapter 9, the story isn't about the healing. The story is about effective prayer and how prayer changes things. Just like Arabella's uh, story that we saw on the screen, that that happens through prayer because prayer changes things. And that's what Jesus was talking about in Mark chapter 9, that that healing that the disciples saw it happened because of prayer. And so today we talk about what's the big deal with the palms? The Sunday before Easter is Palm Sunday. Why do we talk about the palms? And what's the story behind the story of the triumphal entry when they took these palms and they're shaking them around and that whole thing? What's the big deal behind that? And the fact of the matter is that without context, without kind of some background understanding of the scripture that we're reading, we can't buy into the reason why Palm Sunday is such a big deal, why the triumphal entry is such a big deal. And so today, we ask that question, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with the palms? Now, as we get into this, we're going to be looking at Ma- uh, Matthew chapter 21. You can turn there in your scriptures if you want to. We'll have uh, stuff up on the screen. But in Matthew chapter 21, we begin to read, and kind of setting up before this, Jesus is kind of at the pinnacle of his stardom, if you will. He's a rock star rabbi from the Galilee area, which is, which is a long ways away from Jerusalem. Okay, and, and rumblings had been coming throughout Israel about this rock star rabbi named Jesus. And, and now he's making his way toward Jerusalem. 
Jesus has done all these different meal, uh, miracles, healing people, providing meals for thousands out of meager rations, and, and, and blessing children, and all of these different things. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick it up in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he makes it to Bethphage, which Scripture tells us is near the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've not been to Israel, if you haven't looked at a map, then you and I, we have no idea, no context for how, what, Bethphage, never heard of it, you know, it's, it's on the way to Jerusalem by the Mount of Olives, big whoop, you know, and, and so for, for you and for me, some of us, we had the opportunity to go to Israel, and just to give us context about how far it is, this is a picture right here of, this is the Kidron Valley. Right over here is where the Mount of Olives is, and, and the Mount of Olives, Bethphage, is actually across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. Where the, where the Golden Dome is, that would be the Temple Mount. Okay, that's the Temple Mount. The walls that you see right here would be the walls surrounding Jerusalem. So in effect, Bethphage is probably literally half a mile, three quarters of a mile from, from, uh, from Jerusalem. And the funny, I was talking to someone after first service and, and they were saying, you know, we always see those pictures of Jesus, you know, at, at Palm Sunday and he's riding on the donkey and he's on this flat ground. And when you walk, when you walk from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, it is anything but flat, okay? You're in, and when it says you walk up to Jerusalem, you really do. You can see it's surrounded by mountains, but you have to walk up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is coming to Bethphage near the Mount of Olives, and he says to his disciples, he says, I want you to go into the city, and I want you to, to look. And when you first get into the city, you're going to notice that there's a donkey and a colt there. I want you to take that donkey and the colt, and I want you to bring them to me. And if anybody stops you and says, hey, what are you doing? Just say to him, the master has need of this. And so they went in. And all of this was done to fulfill prophecy that had been written hundreds of years before. You ready for this? That prophecy is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. And remember, this is hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's in the old, hundreds of years before, okay? Lowly, the word lowly there actually means gracious and merciful when it's talking about a ruler or a king, okay? And, and let me kind of set up the situation for you right now. Jerusalem, the city that we just saw, Jerusalem at this point as Jesus is entering, going to the city, is at fever pitch because it's the Passover. This is the greatest festival on the Jewish calendar. It is a time when they celebrate God's salvation and redemption when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. The fact that God came and released them and gave them freedom and ultimately they ended up in the promised land. And so, and so they celebrate at this Passover, they celebrate the time when the angel of death would go throughout the land of Egypt killing the firstborn of every living thing and the only way to make it out was to sacrifice a perfect animal to take its blood and paint it over the threshold 
so that when the angel of death made its way through Egypt, when it saw the blood of the perfect sacrifice, it would pass over that house and that family and leave them alone. Thus the name Passover. And so as Israel comes together and they celebrate this epic festival, the key, the big, the coup de grace festival of God's deliverance, Jerusalem is jam-packed with people. It is wall-to-wall people, standing room only. Jews from all around, Jews and converted Gentiles from all around pretty much the known world would make their way to Jerusalem for this festival. So you want to talk crazy. I mean, people with different languages, with different monetary values, they look different, they talk different, they act different. They are all here in Jerusalem to celebrate and to remember the Passover. And the fact of the matter is that for the Jews during this time of Passover, there was an air of hope. There was an air of expectation that in the same way that God had delivered the Jews from Israel, or excuse me, from Egypt, in the same way that God had provided salvation for the Jews from the Egyptians, that God was going to one day provide this same salvation for them. That the Messiah was going to come and to free them. The only problem was they were looking for the wrong king. That this, this Messiah was coming, was to come riding on a colt, okay? Riding on a donkey. And so what happens? So, so the disciples, they go, into, they go into the city and they find it just as Jesus said. They find a donkey and a colt. They bring it out and, and they, they bring the colt to Jesus. They put their, their, their outer garment, their cloak, on top of the donkey so that Jesus can sit on it. And he starts to go to Jerusalem. At this point, all of these people begin to gather. Because let me tell you something. This prophecy would not be lost on them. The people who were in, the vast majority of the Jews who were in Jerusalem at this point in time, the vast majority of the converted Gentiles, non-Jews who were in Jerusalem, the people who knew their Hebrew text, the ones who knew the Old Testament, would not have lost this prophecy. The fact that the Messiah would be coming in riding on a colt, and all of a sudden there he is during the Passover, this epic festival when they were expecting the Messiah to come. Here he is, and he's riding on a colt. And all of a sudden, they start taking their cloaks off, their outer garment, and they throw them on the ground, lest the feet of the Messiah or the animal he's riding on would touch the ground. And some of them, they're waving palm branches. Palm branches are a sign of celebration, okay? Think of it this way. When you have a loved one who comes in from out of town or a friend that you haven't seen in a long time and you meet him at the airport, and a lot of times you'll see people holding signs saying, welcome home or whatever. And I remember when our daughter Alex came home from, from Africa and she had been gone for a while on a teaching assignment and she got home and my daughters had made this big sign that said, welcome home, Alex. Well, that's kind of what this is. The people are grabbing palm branches and pretty much anything they can get. And it's a sign of celebration. Yes, this is incredible. And they're shaking the palms. Thus we get Palm Sunday, right? So Jesus is riding in on the donkey. People are going nuts. 
because they understand the prophecy that's been told, and it's the Passover time. And could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one? And it leads to them singing. And they sing, and it, it says here in uh, Matthew 21, 19, Verse 9, it says, the crowds that went ahead of Jesus and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. You want to talk about stirring up the crowd. You want to talk about people being whipped into a frenzy. This could be the Messiah. In fact, the words they were singing would be very, these words right here would be very familiar especially at this point in time. Part of what they were singing was known as the Hallel. It comes from the Psalms, Psalms 113 through 115. Excuse me, 118. Psalm 113 through 118. And they would be singing this and celebrating as Jesus was coming in. Hosanna, 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 which literally means save. It means save. They're crying out that this, this Messiah like God had done before in Egypt, is going to do today. That salvation is near. And herein lies the problem. See, the Jews that day, who were celebrating this Messiah, possible Messiah, as he's making his way into Jerusalem, are confused. And I know you're going, Doug, confused. What are they confused about? Well, there's not just one Messiah reference in the Old Testament. There are actually two Messiah references in the Old Testament. The first one, we're very, a lot of us are very familiar with. In fact, they yelled it out, son of David, son of David. And David uh, is the epic warrior king, the heroic warrior king in the Old Testament. So when they're yelling, son of David, they're thinking that the Messiah is going to come as a conquering warrior and that he's going to conquer all of their foes and he's going to reestablish Israel to its rightful place as, as the kingdom over all kingdoms. They would finally have their place back. And so they're shouting out about this son of David because they want the warrior king. Now, there's a second messianic reference, one that we don't really understand or know too much about, but the Jews certainly do. And the Jews in that day would have known it very well, that you've got the messianic figure of David, who's the warrior king, but the other one, the son of David when they would come, but the other one was Joseph, the son of Joseph. They would cry out like they would, son of David, son of Joseph. Not Joseph the carpenter, who was Jesus' earthly father, but Joseph from antiquity. Joseph from the old, old, old testament. Joseph, who was the great grandson of Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. That Joseph, that Joseph, who was betrayed by his family. That Joseph, who was sold into slavery. That Joseph, who was imprisoned for doing nothing wrong, who would, in effect, rise again, who would become great in the kingdom of Egypt, in the eyes of Israel. He would become the second greatest man, only second to Pharaoh in the country of Egypt. And the son of Joseph would be known 
as the suffering servant. The son of Joseph would be known as the suffering servant. That he was sold into slavery. That he was betrayed by his own family. That he would be imprisoned uh, for doing nothing wrong. He was, he was falsely imprisoned. And he was the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 61, we read about that heroic son of David. And in Isaiah 52, in chapter 53, it references this suffering servant. And the Jews that day completely misfired on which Messiah was showing up. They were hoping for, as we read, as they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, and yelling and screaming and crying and, and shouting and celebrating and singing about the son of David because they wanted the conquering warrior king. That's who they wanted on that day. They wanted the king that would come and save them, reset them to a former glory. They wanted the conquering king. That's what they wanted. But God wasn't going to give them what they wanted because they had blown it before in this area see israel wanted their own king before and it didn't end well if you look all the way back in 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 uh first samuel chapter 8 you read a story and in the story samuel gets angry at israel because angry uh, israel is saying we want a we want a king we want our own king. Samuel says, you have a king. God is your king. And Israel's like, no, 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 no. We want a king like all the other countries have. We want a king that we can see. We want a king that we can touch. We want a king who can speak audibly to us. We want a king who will lead us into battle. We want a flesh and blood king, just like all the other countries around us have. And Samuel's like, no, God is your king. And I like, know we want a physical king. And Samuel gets angry. And he goes to God. And he's praying to God out of anger. And God says to him, give them what they want. And Samuel says, no, 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 God, you don't understand. You're their king. And God says, no, I'm not. Give them what they want. In fact, God says this in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, and the Lord told Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. But make sure and tell them, Samuel, that that king, it's not going to end up well for them. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Samuel 8. And I just want you to listen. Listen, this is what Samuel tells from the Lord, tells the people of Israel is going to happen from the king that they get. It says this, that Samuel went and he spoke the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Samuel said to the people, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves, and he'll give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your, your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. 
He will take a tenth of your flock, flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel looks at him and says, listen, this is what God told me is going to happen. If you have a king, a physical king other than God, he's going to take pretty much everything away from you and you're going to become his slaves. And their answer was, we don't care, we want a king. We want a king. Everybody chant, we want a king. That's what they were saying, right? Everybody's chanting, we want a king, we want a king. That's what they're saying. And Sam is like, all right. And God was basically like, all right, you're going to get what you asked for. And it did not end up well for Israel. In fact, I would maybe even go so far as to say that they find themselves where they are today under Roman oppression partly because of that decision that they wanted their own king. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem that day, there's a big difference. Big difference between the king that was entering Jerusalem that day and the king that was made in 1 Samuel. And the difference is this, that God gave Israel on that day as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, God gave Israel not the king they wanted, but the king they needed. God did not give Israel the king they wanted. He gave them the king they needed. Jesus showed up that day to be the king but his intention was not to set Israel back on top, to restore its former glory, to make it the kingdom above all other kingdoms. It wasn't to set them right before the rest of the world. Jesus rode in as the king that day to set us right before God. That's why Jesus rode in on that day. And because Jesus did not show up as the conquering hero king, although he will at some point show up as that messianic figure, as the son of David, the conquering hero, that will happen. But that day Jesus showed up as the suffering servant. Jesus came that day not to defeat the Romans, but to defeat sin and death. Jesus' priorities were way bigger than politics and way grander than religion. On that day, on that day, God did not give Israel the king they wanted. They'd already made that mistake, and God knew it. And if God gave them the king they wanted again, they were just going to mess it up. And so that day, God didn't give them the king that they wanted. God gave them the king that they needed. God gave them the king that they needed. And that's true for you and me. So often there's a big difference between what I want and what I need. What I want and what I need. And Jesus knew what that meant. 
he knew that the battle and the struggle was not with the Romans. It was so much bigger, so much more costly than that. And it's what Paul would write about in Ephesians when he would write, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the people that day wanted a conqueror over Rome. And God said, no, you need a conqueror over death, and that is why I have come. That day, God did not give Israel the king they wanted. He gave them the king that they needed. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, on that day, as the crowd desperately desired a conqueror, conquering warrior king who would put the nation back and return it to its former glory, Jesus enters the picture as the suffering servant who would put the world on his back, including our sin, and our shame, the very things that separate us from God. And Jesus would suffer our fate. He would pay our price for our sin. He would take our place in death and lead each of us to the glory that is before our God. Hundreds of years before Jesus walked this earth, the prophet Isaiah would write about this suffering servant. And he would write this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All the way back to that first king, Saul. And they paid the price for that. The pain and the agony that they went through. And now Jesus comes in as this messianic figure riding on a donkey and everybody there would know exactly what's going on but he's not coming in as the conquering hero son of David he's entering in as the suffering servant son of Joseph and in a couple of days the price will be horrid painful and ultimately fatal because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it causes us to ask the question, to which king will you bow? The one you want or the one you need? See, there are a lot of things that I want, and they're not going to help me in eternity. The one I need is the one I can't afford. The one I need is the one named Jesus. 
And so today, as we talk about the palms, and we, you kind of think about what Jesus is about to go through and how misguided the Jews were in that moment as, as they're yelling and screaming and waving palm branches, that this wasn't like a happy occasion for Jesus as he sternly set his sight, not on a celebration, but on the cross. Because in two days, he would hang. And on Good Friday, you and I will come together. I, I hope you'll be here, as Pastor Kyle talked about. On Good Friday, we remember what Jesus has done for us and the price he paid as the suffering servant. And so with that in mind, I have three questions that I want to pose to you that help us answer the question, what's the big deal? Three questions for you and me, and I hope that maybe you'll talk about these with your family, your friends, or maybe you'll just sit and ponder them today and this week. The first question is this, what's the big deal about the palms? What's the story behind the story of the triumphal entry? And I know some of us can go, well, Doug, you just talked about it. Right. But what's the big deal to you? What's the story behind the story for you? And maybe you'll go and not just read Matthew's presentation and testimony of this, but maybe you'll read the other biographies of Jesus in Mark and Luke and John and find out about this and answer that question. What's the story behind the story for the triumphal entry? Second question is this. Why are we as human beings more concerned about what we want rather than what we need? That could be a deep conversation right there. Why are we as human beings more concerned about what we want rather than what we need? And the third question is this. God is not concerned about what you want. His concern is about what you need. How does Jesus meet your need from an eternal perspective? How does Jesus meet your need from an eternal perspective? Would you stand up with me as we close our time together this morning we close it in maybe a little bit kind of a somber moment here thinking about what jesus was about to enter into i always thought palm sunday was a celebration i don't know about you but when i was growing up palm sunday was always kind of a happy day just like it was for the jews that day when jesus was was riding the donkey in but the fact of the matter is that palm sunday is the beginning of the end the beginning of the end of the beginning yeah Palm Sunday leads to Good Friday, but Good Friday leads to Easter Sunday. The greatest, whoo, the greatest, I'm sorry, I just got goosebumps. The greatest day in the history of history. And next week, we're going to be singing that new song that Pastor Michael taught us last week, started last week, and the new song, I Thank God. And I thank God that Jesus did not dodge Palm Sunday. I thank God that Jesus didn't dodge riding in and becoming the suffering servant, so that next week we can celebrate the greatest day in the history of history. And my hope and my prayer is that you are looking at your circle of seven, that you are looking at your friends, your family, your, your, your co-workers, your fellow students, your neighbors, you're looking and you're going, man, I've been praying for this person, I've been praying for this family. Maybe next week, maybe this is the time to invite them to celebrate what God has done for them. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for what Palm Sunday symbolizes. Not so much the conquering warrior king, but the suffering servant 
who was hung on a cross, betrayed by those closest to him, taken through a sham trial and accused and convicted of, of things you never did, innocent and innocently hung on a cross, bled and died for us, and yet three days later rose again so that we can stand before your throne worshiping you, Jesus. So the words of the song that we're about to sing, hell has lost another one. I'm free. I praise you for that, God, and I thank you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.